On this episode of the This Is Believe in Podcast, I'm joined by Mike Hattery as we talk some Indians baseball. How are you doing today? Doing great, James. Thanks for having me on. Um, I thought you would be a, a good person to talk to about the Indians. You're someone who's fairly active when it comes to about talking about baseball, and you've produced a lot of content that's baseball-related. Uh, I've ventured out into talking about some other markets, some other teams, but you know, I always like talking about the tribe. Yeah, it's a fun. It's such a fun thought experiment thinking about you know an eighty game season, a sixty game season, and and how does that change baseball and how we view this this baseball team? So I think I think it creates a lot of really fun conversations potentially. Yeah, and there's one uh, particular area that it seems to have been an, uh, a concern for more than one year now, and that's the outfield. Because it seems like they have one guy that you can pretty much say, yes, that's your everyday guy, and that's Oscar Mercado. Then that's when the fun starts. Yeah, and, you know, I'm a big Mercado fan, and and I think he's really talented. But this is a guy who, you know, offensively broke out in the minors like a year, you know, a year ago. And then last year in the big leagues was pretty good, uh, really solid, but, you know, even even Mercado, who's probably the Indians' biggest lock in the outfield, is you know still pretty risky from a from a you know production standpoint. I I thought I saw something from someone saying that Mercado's production last year might actually be the outlier in his career, where he wasn't necessarily projected to be what he produced last year. Yeah, you know, he's it's just a really changed offensive profile. I, I don't think anybody saw double digit home runs and you know in that level of playing time for him as as well as as you know i think he hit for an average he's tremendously gifted he works tremendously hard and and obviously he may just be maximizing and, and making the leap later in his in his developmental path than others but i definitely think it's reasonable to say hey you know maybe you know maybe that's the upper bound of what we see from from oscar Mercado, or or maybe it's the floor i mean we never know but i think probabilistically i'm probably a little more skeptical of his offense than than everyone but but hey that that was the fun part of the outfield right like yeah. that was a, that was a good part that, that's that's where that's that's lock that's the guy we're gonna plug into a spot and be like yes that's our guy now it's when you start considering everybody else that's when everything gets a little bit uh complicated because we have Fran Mio Reyes Fran Mio Reyes is an outfielder but he might project to be a DH later in his career the only problem is, is that they just signed Domingo Santana to do that exact same thing. Yeah, no, it's I, I'm really fascinated by you know sort of the balance of where Tito goes if those guys are both you know both hitting because I think you know Santana's a guy who really like for the last seven years shouldn't have been allowed to wear a glove at any <laughs> point, and Framil Reyes is not super athletic. And it's just one of those things where, you know, Reyes has been someone who's been handled more aggressively to the DH side. And it'll be interesting to see if Tito's like, well, Santana's played out there. We should trust him out there. I'm going to go him over Reyes, which I could see. Um, but picking which defensive player, I would go with Reyes. I think he probably is a little more athletic. And in my view, has always been left field in Cleveland is like one of the easiest places to play defense in baseball. Um, but still, it's – I it's going to be messy. And if you put either of them in right field, I think it gets bad pretty fast. Yeah. Ne- neither guy is necessarily all that inspiring uh, defensively. Framiel Reyes at least slimmed down a little bit before 
uh, everything was halted, so it looked like he was at least preparing for an everyday outfield role compared to, I think, what we all thought he was going to be six, seven months ago, which was just plugged into that DH spot. So who's uh, who's your who's your guy? So I think everybody has like uh, someone they've been attached to for the last few years. You know, Greg Allen has has favorites. Zimmer obviously just oozes tools. Super frustrating from a from a contact standpoint. But then you have I I think Daniel Johnson is the most exciting to me right now. You know, which one of those do you think pops into that fourth outfielder plays a significant amount of time role? That's a really good question because, I mean, I'm not the biggest Greg Allen fan, uh, only because I feel that in short spurts, Greg Allen's fine. It's when you start expanding upon what you need from him that his results become significantly worse. He had that one stretch in 2018 where he looked good, but besides that, he's been rather forgettable. Uh... I think Daniel Johnson is someone who's intriguing, but again, we don't know what he is necessarily. Uh, so I'd like to see Daniel Johnson get a, a shot only because it's something that we don't know. But I, for in regards to Greg Allen, I'm pretty much out on Greg Allen at this point. Yeah, I, I'm similarly aligned. And I, I think the Indians really are too. I thought that, you know, there are different reasonings on why DeShields was included in the Kluber trade, but I think the Indians are committed to DeShields being in that like fourth, fifth, probably fifth-ish outfielder role. And with him, Allen just seems super redundant. I mean, they're both like, you know, defense first, stolen base first, you know, bench players. And Mm -hmm. once you have that, and I mean, that's partially true of Zimmer as well, but I think Allen definitely doesn't have the power upside Zimmer does. So that crosses him off the list pretty fast. And the issue with Zimmer is we don't necessarily know what he's going to be either because he's he's dealt with injuries. He has a completely new swing, so we don't necessarily has seen enough, uh, you know, I guess time of him playing one healthy and two with this swing to know if he's actually going to be productive at the plate. Yeah, it's a it's so amazing how fast it feels like time runs out on the opportunities for some of these guys because you know. Two and a half, it's probably two and a half years ago now, you know, Zimmer like sort of burst forth and was awesome. And then we started to see the strikeout issues come through. And then we saw, you know, multiple injuries and all that pop. And now it seems like, you know, we're a, we're a a sort of messy Zimmer season from, is he still a 40 man guy? Is he a potential DFA? I mean, the clock for Zimmer seems to be ticking pretty, pretty quickly at this point. Yeah, and that's that's something I actually wrote about a few months ago when I thought, you know, baseball is actually going to happen, was, uh, you know, this year is pretty much like a, not to say a make or break, but it's a very important season for Zimmer in Cleveland if he actually wants to, you know, stay here beside, you know, beyond this year or even into this year, just because it seems like there's been so many circumstances and they've been actively finding other guys to play the outfield because he's been unavailable. And, you know, when he has been, he hasn't necessarily been all that, I guess exciting. Yeah, no, he's. I mean, he's still. I. He was so fun to watch play center. I've always had a lot of concerns from when he was in A ball about you know the contact issues and whether he was going to be playable against left-handed pitching. But you know, the Indians really just need. You know, if if you get a solid season from Mercado, and you know you have Mercado, Reyes, and Leplo, so what do you need? You need guys who can really 
beat up right-handed pitching and just sit on the bench and maybe play late game defense. And that's where, you know, Zimmer and, and I think Daniel Johnson are positioned really well to, you know, they, they will get their opportunities because they need someone in that, you know, beating up right-handed pitching role. And, you know, hopefully one of them shows that they can do it. Now, one person um, that we have not mentioned yet who should be able to hit right-handed pitching, who has versatility because he can also play first base is Jake Bowers. It seems like he is someone that, uh, I don't know necessarily if the Indians whiffed on this trade, but um, I, I feel that he's someone that might be able to do something, not necessarily this year, but maybe next year, you know, to produce. Yeah, he's, you know, he is someone who, he's so young, right? And he's a disciplined hitter. You know, the big thing you worry about are, there are two big things, I guess. One, one of which is, you know, he just doesn't seem to hit the ball hard enough, frequently enough. <laughs> which is, he makes a lot of sort of like off-barrel contact. He doesn't strike out a ton. He strikes out a decent amount and he walks a lot. But it, he seems almost too passive offensively at times. So he doesn't barrel up the ball enough. And the other is, you know, like, he seems, it's funny because he's really athletic. You know, you look at sprint speed, you just like watch him run the bases and he's a pretty good base runner. He's very athletic. And then you watch him in left field and um, it's not fun. It's an adventure. <laughs> it's, it's, and it, I'll be honest, when they traded for him, I was like, yeah, this makes sense. You know, he hasn't played the outfield a ton, but he's a really athletic guy. He's 22, 23. Like you can bet on that guy learning the position. And then, you know, like I watched him play left field last year and I was like, ah, you know, I'm really not that confident that happens now. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I don't know if you remember, I always, the funniest guy playing the outfield for me, and it's amazing how long he's played it is Shinsu Chu is like often the most athletic player on a baseball field. And he made right field, like it looked like it was hard to play. Like he had a hose <laughs> and he was, you know, he's a great sprinter. He was a great athlete, but he, his reads, and I, I get a similar vibe from Bowers or he gets some really bad reads and gets caught in between, and it's just it's stressful. I, oh, I loved Shinsu Chu, big Shinsu Chu guy here. Uh, always, <laughs> he was always a, an interesting person defensively. But you know, uh, I don't know how big of a fantasy baseball person you were, but he was always someone that when you know prime Shinsu Chu, he was someone I always got you know kind of later because he always produced. Oh yeah, great by low, great OBP, twenty dingers, twenty steals. 10, 15 steals. It's a lot of value. Yeah, lots of value in, in Shinsu Chu. But uh, interesting that you make that comparison between Bowers and Chu and their uh, defensive ability. Because initially when they brought Bowers over, I, I didn't know uh, if he was going to be a full-time uh, outfielder. Uh, I don't know if they were going to try and have him split time at first base or DH or what they were going to do. Because this was also during that time where they were, you know, experimenting with the likes of Hanley Ramirez and Carlos Gonzalez on the team. So uh, it seemed like they were just trying to make something work. And uh, may maybe because they were trying to maybe do too much with him and maybe mess with his head a little bit, maybe getting set in the one certain position will make him a little bit more comfortable. Yeah, you would hope. I mean, that it is amazing. We're, we're a year away from it, but that April and May stretch with Hanley and, and Carlos Gonzalez, it's just so retrospectively strange to think about. Um, 
What a weird time. <laughs> <laughs> it was a weird time. I don't know if you're an MLB the show player, but I was playing with the Indians and Carlos Gonzalez, and eventually the defense will adapt. And I did something that Indians Twitter would kill me for. I was bunting with Carlos Gonzalez just to beat the shift over and over again until the computer fixed itself to stop playing the shift, so I actually got the swing. Nice. Rack it up, man. I'll, I'll bunt against the shift all day. I mean, I wish the Indians could do it more. If, if Carlos Santana could learn to do it, like, five, five singles a year against the shift, I'd be thrilled. But uh, so, someone, someone interesting you also mentioned a little bit earlier, Jordan Luplo. Um, I, I think he's someone that it would be great if they could deploy him against, you know, other besides just left-handed pitching. I, I think he could, but it seems like he's kind of pigeonholed into a versus lefties uh, role. Yeah, and I think for better or for worse, this is like a big, this is a big year for that for him. He got some, but very few against right-handed pitching, and, you know, he crushed left-handed. To me, he's like sort of earned the right to, get you know 100 or 200 pas and be like hey can you keep your head above water because you know we've spent the last 10 minutes of this podcast probably talking about how absolutely abhorrent most of these defenders are (laughs) in the outfield and like he seems pretty competent as a defender so (laughs) if he can hold his head above water against right-handed pitching that's pretty helpful because he's not going to kill you defensively the way you know domingo and uh, all those other boys. <laughs> uh, where do you think Tyler Naquin fits in here when he comes back from his injury? Yeah, I mean, he's he's the one who, like, if healthy, like, he's your highest probability he can still hit right-handed pitching. I mean, the guy for his career has always hit right-handed pitching. He defends solid in right field. Never could really defend that well in center, but that's not his fault. He was put in a position he wasn't really going to succeed in. But, yeah, I mean, I I think a healthy and healthy and potent Naquin is huge and I mean it's one of the ways in which this delayed season is maybe advantageous for the Indians you know you had Clevenger banged up you had Carrasco banged up you had I mean the class they think hurts but you know Naquin back if you're not confident in in Zimmer or Johnson Naquin is a huge piece in terms of deepening a lineup against you know different types of pitching and maybe they could do a little uh, lefty righty uh, platoon split with some of these guys uh Maybe not necessarily Luplo, but you know maybe Santana or Reyes if they're struggling against uh, right-handed pitching at any given time. You know, just an yeah, option I, to consider. I yeah, I absolutely think it's going to be essential, especially if you know you're playing Reyes a lot defensively. I think you're going to want to rest him a little bit just to you know keep his you know he's in better better shape and, and maybe he's not now. Who knows if he's in good shape <laughs> during the pandemic? Yeah, definitely added a few pounds. <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, I, I agree. I think it's going to be a, and I think they should be fairly aggressive with platooning. You know, if they had somebody who was a better defender, but I wouldn't mind being a little aggressive if Zimmer looks healthy and competent with him and Mercado and center. Um, you know, I would still give Mercado the majority of the, the at-bats, but you know, tough righties, I'd gladly send out Brad Zimmer and see if he can, see if he can handle it. Now, are you a Tyler Naquin fan? Because I know the, the you know people that pay attention to the Indians are fairly divided on on Tyler Naquin for a variety of reasons. Yeah, I def- I've been all over the place on Tyler Naquin. I was pumping the brakes that rookie that season when he broke out because it was pretty highly Babbitt driven, and 
I think he's become weirdly underrated. I mean, sometimes you just need guys who put up like one and a half war and hit their side of the platoon really well. And like, that's a useful baseball player. Like he's, you know, Cherry was a first round pick. And I mean, maybe you want more, but sometimes you just need solid baseball players. And like, I I think he's fine. I have no complaints. I have no complaints. I think a lot of people uh, are turned off to him because uh, he has some uh, aspects to him that remind a lot of people of Nick Swisher, and that that's how he doesn't uh, bode well for him in the uh, opinion department. Yeah, that's fair. Although I do think, from what I've heard, he seems more well-liked from a clubhouse perspective than Swisher was, who went through a pretty cold time in Cleveland. Poor old Nick. Yeah, Were you a Nick Swisher fan? Let me ask you that one. I was excited about the signing, and uh, yeah, the the shtick was fun for a period. You know, I don't know. I'm I'm also a weird. Like, I, I didn't go to Ohio State, so it probably mattered less to me that he went to Ohio. You know, mm-hmm. flashed the OSU stuff all the time. I, I enjoy it. He was fun. Like, if you're winning games, I don't really. You know, he's like a fun guy if you're winning games, and if you're not winning games, he's not that fun to have around. That's that's a that's a fairly uh, accurate uh, description of uh, of Swisher. Uh, the way I always saw the Swisher thing is that they were you know they brought in Tito. They were trying to you know revamp everything, get a you know build a culture, and Nick Swisher was part of that. Whether they like it or not, it was just someone who's going to energize people, keep them engaged, and you know he, he helped I guess lengthen the lineup a little bit. Even though he was not necessarily the best hitter during his time in Cleveland, he helped them a little bit. You know, lineup wise. Yeah, and his first year he was rock solid, and that helped the team like go to a wild card game. And I mean, I think that was very foundational for the next you know five to seven years of baseball. So uh, there are no complaints. I I think he became a sort of weird fit in a locker room with the Brantley, Gomes, Kluber, Carrasco types. Um, But still, he was. I would make that gamble again. That was the Indians' front office. Oh, absolutely. Uh, moving on to another area that seems to be in a a similar uh, situation in the outfield. It's the uh, the bullpen. Uh, this one is doesn't have as much uh, upside to it as the outfield does, in my opinion. Uh, you know, only because you you mentioned uh, Emmanuel Classe and his injury, then subsequent suspension uh, for, for for performance enhancing drugs. Um, the last time an Indians player got suspended for that particular performance enhancing drugs, it was Abraham Almonte. Ooh. I love Dave. Love Dave. So, I mean, his absence is going to hurt. He was he was a, the, the prized part of the, the Kluber trade. Uh, I, I know a lot of people were like, ooh, DeShields. I'm like, no, no, no. Classe, the guy who throws 102 miles an hour with movement, that's the guy you want to be excited about. Yeah, no, he's the he's the guy, and especially guys who make it to the big leagues at 22 throwing 100 are uh, they're an incredibly rare breed. It's not a thing that happens very often. So in that way, he's very exciting. But it, the bullpen is one of those things where I think I think the Indians are sort of caught in, be, in between this season um, in a sense that I don't know if they saw the three batter minimum rule coming. I think if you look at some of their bullpen acquisitions and who they invested in over the last few years. You know, Adam Simber in the in the era of th- the minimum batter rule is like not super useful because lefties absolutely destroy him. Uh-huh. Um, 
uh, I think Ollie, I love Ollie Perez and I think he can still be competent, but I think that's, you know, it's kind of harder to hold on to Ollie, Ollie Perez in this situation. And then you just have to look at, you know, I'm not a huge Nick Whitgren fan. I think last year was kind of an outlier. Okay. I don't think he was super good. I don't buy his stuff that much. I love Karen Jack. I think Karen Jack's probably the best pitcher already. And, and Brad Hand's really good. So that's a compliment to how good Karen Jack is. But the rest of that bullpen, I'm, I'm pretty skeptical about. For what it's worth, I, I do like Nick Whitgren. Um, I, I used to write about the Marlins a couple years ago, and that's when he was he was there. And he just seemed to be glossed over for you know for other guys, but he seemed to be in a relatively non-important role, pitching fairly well. I mean, he did have a couple hiccups there, here and there, but he was relatively consistent. And I think it, he pitched well enough last year that, you know, in a certain role where he doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, one of the, one of the guys, I think he's perfectly fine. But now with, uh, class a out of the mix, it might be not the right spot for him. Yeah. And I, and I think that's fair. I think is that sort of like perfectly competent sixth inning guy who like, I don't mind him pitching in close games in the sixth inning, I mind him pitching in close games in the eighth and ninth inning or in higher leverage situations. But I, I agree. I think I think he's competent. I I do worry about like who's that third guy. And I also worry about whether the Indians will even trust Karen Chak out of spring, out of whatever it is we're gonna call this. But to me, after hand and Karen Chak, you really need a third guy. And if you know, I'm not I'm not sure who that is. Who do you like? Uh, geez, uh, it, it was Class A, but not now. Um, <laughs> I've always been a big Oliver Perez fan, but uh, I am aware of his limitations. Uh, I am aware of his age. Uh, you always are playing with fire with someone who's getting up there in age like that. There's They're approaching a cliff that once you get there and he falls off, there's no coming back. And we're getting close there with Oliver Perez, I feel. Um, <laughs> Um, and I adore him. I like. I adore his like double pumps. I adore his quick pitching. But yeah, I'm I'm nervous. <laughs> uh, I that's that's why I love Oliver Press so much. Just the disrupting timing. He's just like an absolute expert at that. And that's just you see the the the, uh, the guy at the plate just getting so upset with Press just because it's so inconsistent. It's so chain. It changes pitch to pitch. I, I know if I was a hitter, it would drive me absolutely insane. Uh, but I jeez. A third guy, it's hard to pick out of these people because, like you said, Simber is a he's a one-person guy, and that's no longer an option unless there's two outs in an inning. Uh, but, I mean, you're going to have to go with Hand, Wickren, and Karen Jack and hope, hope for the best. Yeah, and I think they do have some really fun... I'll be... I think one of the most interesting things if they play and how the rosters are constructed, I don't have a great feel for, but you wonder if they just immediately transition a guy like Giancarlos Mejia to the bullpen. He's a guy who like was injured part of last year, but sort of like ticked up sort of from a prospect perspective the year before and was good last year when he was healthy. And he can you know probably touch 95, 96 out of the pen. He's got decent command. It's a heavy sinker close to rule you know he's close to you know after this year he'd be rule five eligible so you do wonder if you know maybe maybe they sort of just end the starting pitching development with him and and pen him pretty quick do you think they would uh consider taking some of their not necessarily 
low level, but you know, middling starting pitching uh, options that they trotted out last year and try and convert them to some sort of bullpen spot. So maybe yeah. somebody like a Plesak or, you know, not necessarily Savale. I think Savale has a better future than Plesak does, but I think, you know, Plesak would be interesting out of the bullpen. Yeah, I agree. I am, I am all aboard that train. I know one of my buddies, Gage Will is, is not, is a, is a huge Plesak guy and thinks he's a long-term starter, which he could be right. I, I agree. I, Plesak's exactly the sort of guy where I just, he has one and a half or two pitches right now. And, you know, maybe he adds a third pitch and becomes a legit starter, but if not, and you can add two miles per hour in the bullpen, just go have him throw 96, 97 and, and use his secondary. Um, so I, I think he's a guy who plays up. Savali, he held more velocity last year, and, and I adore Savali. I'm a hype, I'm a Savali hype guy, so. Okay. Um, I'm definitely, definitely, you know, like the wrong person to ask here, but I definitely, I think he has to stay in the rotation. I, I also think he, you know, his velocity peaks probably 93 to 95 so i don't think you're really going to gain a lot if you put him in the bullpen um from a velocity standpoint whereas i think pleasak probably ticks up a little bit yeah what about uh what about moving somebody out of the rotation like yefri rodriguez oh yeah yefri man how have i forgotten about yefri rodriguez i that's fascinating baseball is so far from my mind tonight (laughs) He's so fun, and, and he's got that really heavy fastball, so he's throwing like 98, but it's like a bowling ball, so mm-hmm. he's getting all sorts of ground balls. You, I mean, I do – I think the Indians' approach over the last few years of just like acquiring these high-power arms and just hoping they can teach them one or two things is pretty fun. Mm-hmm. Like they've, they've made a lot of toolsy gambles, especially that Gomes trade where like Rodriguez has massive tools, mm-hmm. and Daniel Johnson has some really big tools, and, and – you know, both of them could be contributing this year, probably more than Gomes will. Yeah, the Gomes trade was not popular at the time. Uh, I wrote something at the time saying it was necessary. They had to do it. He had a career year. Uh, he was not going to duplicate that ever. Uh, congratulations on winning that World Series in Washington. But we knew that regression was coming. Oh yeah, it was, it was a lock, and and we knew Birdo could hold his own. It was it was it was absolutely one of those situations where you would trade for depth, clear salary, pick up talent. Ideally, you would actually reinvest the uh, savings. But uh... <laughs> let's just dance around that topic. That's a whole uh, can of worms. Uh, now, in my opinion, there's one. I know we're talking about starting uh, the. Bullpen, but there's one thing in the starting rotation I think we that needs to be addressed, and and that's Carlos Carrasco. Uh, in, in a perfect world, Carlos Carrasco would be pitching for the Indians this year. I just don't know if that's in his best interest. Yeah, I really don't. And I like I'm I feel like I'm not qualified to give an opinion on this, but I'm like just always really uh, skeptical anytime we discuss like just relying on on Carrasco in general in any role this year or next year I mean you know there's so much that he's had to undergo physically and to have to rebuild his body and 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 I don't know so I just remain inherently pretty skeptical that he's gonna be uh, a guy who throws a lot of innings in the next few years yeah uh the only reason I brought it up because it was a, it was a topic of conversation on the Baseball Tonight podcast today that I listened to. 
because uh, they talked to him, or it might have been yesterday's, I don't remember which one it was, but, uh, you know, with him and, you know, dealing with leukemia, he's, it's a higher risk for him compared to someone who did not have that, so that's the only reason why I say it's in his best interest not to play this year until we have a better idea of exactly what's happening. But like you, like you said, I am not qualified to speak on this beyond repeating something I've already heard. Yeah. And I, I certainly like, I've heard the same and, and I, I appreciate, you know, I really hope Carlos makes the right choices for him and we'll see. I mean, who knows whether baseball gets played I, I'm, I'm pretty skeptical that the players union and, and MLB pull something off here, but I want to talk about baseball like it's going to happen. Cause I want to believe it's going to happen. Okay, we we can we can circle back around to that at the end here, but uh, <laughs> uh, I, I think in a, in a, if Carlos Carrasco actually could pitch, he'd be an interesting person out of the bullpen. But because that seemed to be he, where he found his groove a couple years ago, maybe coming out of the starting rotation would be a, a way to go if they want to explore some of their younger arms that they have in the system right now. Yeah, I, I I think that's definitely a possibility this year. I could I could definitely see him just being a pen guy this year. And that would that would help with losing someone like Class A, not the same type of pitcher, but it's someone who's can help fill in, and you wouldn't have to go to Hunter Wood. Oh man, Hunter Wood, another great name. What fun stuff Hunter Wood has. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, let's let's have Carrasco out of the pen. I don't want to see Hunter Wood that much this year. I think in the in the right role, Hunter Wood could be fine, but that role is not the role he was in in Cleveland last year. I think they have too many uh, of that Hunter guy. Wood. <laughs> yeah, they they have a lot of Nick Wickren and Hunter Wood, and and uh, they need some other guys. So other guys. Uh, the other thing we discussed beforehand was the mythical figure that has become Bobby Bradley, the assassin. <laughs> okay, and I refer to him as a mythical figure because I don't know where he fits in, you know, future-wise, with this immediate version of the team and beyond this season. I don't know where he fits. Does he fit? He's, yeah, he's another guy where, you know, the clock is uh, it's a compressed clock, and I think that's a, the way it is for a lot of, especially first-base-only types where, you know... It, you got to show you can hit pretty quickly because there's a lot of guys in the big leagues who can't play anywhere but first base and who can hit. Um, and so I think I think that part, you know, obviously he's he got to the big leagues at a pretty young age, which is a positive. He's got tons of power, but he's always had massive strikeout issues. He was striking out way too much in AAA last year, and in the bigs it was near 40%. I mean, you just without that changing, it's it's tough to buy into him as being an average offensive player, let alone the significantly above average you need from him at first base. And, you know, I think this question probably relates a lot to whether you think Nolan Jones sticks at third or is going to end up a corner outfielder or first baseman. And if you think he might be pushed across the diamond, I think, you know, Bobby Bradley's clock is pretty close to midnight in Cleveland. Yeah, he's, he's – I mean, they have – they have someone who can play a DH. I mean, like it or not, Framio Reyes, I think, eventually ends up a DH. Uh, I don't think he's an out, everyday outfielder. Uh, right now, they have Domingo Santana as their DH. Carlos Santana is firmly placed at first base. Uh, how long he stays in Cleveland, nobody knows. Uh, 
someone else we already met, already mentioned, Jake Bowers, also in the mix, first base, DH type. They have a whole bunch of guys that literally do what he does, but they've shown they can, most of them have shown they can do it better at the major league level than he can. And I, I think that yep. with the Indians uh, hoping to contend, hoping to make a, a postseason or, you know, be a winning team, Bobby Bradley's spot isn't necessarily guaranteed or even an option at this point. Yeah, and I mean, if he could, if he could get close to what you know, yeah, I mean, there's, there's real, I don't know, I, I, he is a collect, he is in a section of prospect with Bradley Zimmer that I am always skeptical of, which is if you're running thirty percent K rates before you make it to the big leagues. I'm just pretty skeptical you're ever going to hit enough to stick. And, I, you know, Bradley has enough power that you kind of hope if he could get it to just 32% and then hit 30 homers, then, you know, maybe. And and maybe he does that. Maybe he just needed, you know, a little taste and make a few changes. But I'm, I'm pretty skeptical. And, and he doesn't have a ton of time. We saw the same with sort of Aguilar where, you know, he got pretty limited opportunities. We can comment on whether those opportunities were very fair. And then he was gone, you know, and and pretty quickly. And I, I think Bradley's, you know, closing in on the same position. You, you mentioned Aguilar. Uh, he was someone who had one fantastic season. Then big-time regression happened, which was sort of expected. So I, I remember as soon as Aguilar was hitting, as rational as Indian Twitter always is, they threw a shit fit. <laughs> yeah, no, there's there was no patience. And then, you know, I mean, he's still competent, but he's a part-time, you know, he's like a bench bat who plays 60 games and hits left-handed pitching. Yeah, it's like... Yeah. Now, that's what the Indians saw. It, I mean, they were right in that assessment. Uh, you know, maybe Aguilar's one season where he's productive is the outlier. And it seems like so far it is. Uh, just something similar. Uh, you know, we mentioned Jake Bowers. Uh, we just mentioned... Jesus Aguilar, Yandy Diaz. Tell me what you think of Yandy Diaz. So, because the my the, thing is the, my, the world is divided like, on him. I mean, and I don't know how much there room there is. I think there's this. I think a lot of us got really hyped up on Yandy because we knew that there was a really good floor there, right? Really, mm-hmm. like, guy walks all the time. He doesn't strike out. He hits the ball hard. Like that's a really high floor. And um, and I and so I think. I think some of the hype got probably a little crazy. I mean, he's an adequate defender. He hasn't really gotten to the power yet, but he hits the ball. You know, he, he just doesn't hit the ball in the air enough. But I, I do think it was one of those really costly mistakes for the Indians, which has always been my point, which is, like, they need these cost-controlled pre-arb players. And when you have one, and even if he's just, like, a slightly above-average starter, which I think is probably what Yandi looks like, you can't afford to give that up and not get something similar in return. And, you know, they do a massive salary dump, which was essentially the Carlos Santana trade, and he's awesome when they brought him back. But they could have done that without Yandy being involved. And uh, and so that part of it's pretty disappointing. I think he's a fine player, and I think he's just the type of player the Indians can't afford to lose and still contend on this budget. I mean, I mean that's fair. Uh, I'm glad you're, you're more rooted in reality of what Yandy Diaz is compared to uh, you know, Yandy Diaz hits one home run, and oh my God, the Indians made the worst move of all time. Because, uh, like you said, he he didn't he hit the ball hard, but it wasn't 
wasn't in the air. I mean, most of his hits were line drives or grounders. Yeah, I mean, I, he's. I think he's one of those guys where you're just like, hey, we're buying a 350 OBP and solid defense, and that pretty quickly gets you to two and a half or three WAR. And when it costs you five hundred thousand dollars a year, awesome. You know when, and and hey, maybe sometimes he does figure out how to hit the ball in the air. Mm-hmm. I mean, he hasn't, and he's old enough that it's pretty reasonable to be skeptical that he will. You know, but we'll see. Yeah, I mean, and I guess the. The one issue is the you know the position he played. I mean, that was the big argument about him is put him at third and move Jose to second and just cut Kipnis because he was on the team at the time and everyone wanted to get rid of Jason Kipnis. But I'm like, listen, Yandy Diaz is not someone you move Jose Ramirez for. Even though they've moved Jose before, they didn't do it for some of the quality of Yandy Diaz. They did it for you know Josh Donaldson. Yeah, no, I mean, moving Jose Ramirez off third base at this point, I think, would be a ridiculous idea for almost anyone, including Nolan Jones. Mm-hmm. I mean, to be honest, I'd play Nolan Jones in left or put him at first if he's going to, you know, because he has to rake. He's not a great defender, so he shouldn't really be moving a good defender off a position. And I think, you know, in general, second basemen tend to take, you know, a lot more wear and tear than third basemen do because they have a lot more plays around the bag that are dangerous. And I'd rather not have like my second best player or best player getting beat up all the time around the bag. So I'd rather keep him a third. Are, are you a uh, are you a Jose Ramirez or Francisco Lindor is the best player in the team? Person. I'm a Jose. I mean, I think I'm fine with people saying Lindor. I I mostly say Jose because I think he's largely underappreciated. I mean, he put up an eight plus WAR season. Lindor's never gotten close to eight. Uh, his peak was awesome last year. He was lost in the desert for three months and still ended up being just like 10 or 12% worse than Lindor offensively who had a pretty normal season for Lindor. So mm-hmm. I mean, in that it, context, I just, I, I think that, I think the highs have been higher with Jose and I, I think Lindor has been a little more steady. Okay. Yeah. I was just curious. Cause I know the, uh, you know, most people just assume Lindor, but it, you know, this is the occasional person that's a Jose Ramirez is a better player person. Um, but you never know. Uh, I, I think they're relatively about the same in terms of uh, ability, quality. Uh, it's really just whoever you're feeling that day is the better player. Maybe one day it's Frankie. Maybe the next day it's Jose. And I, I think so much of like so much of why I am intrigued by it is you know like Ramirez is like less than a year older, and the perception is so fascinating to me because I think part of it is because Lindor has always been a premier prospect. Lindor has always been premier, and, and Ramirez wasn't. And then Ramirez is just putting up these monster years. He's about the same age, and no one's ever like, "Oh man, this guy's like could be a league-wide star," you know. And, and part of it is, you know, Lindor's more marketable, but part of it is, I'm like, man, it feels like Ramirez is just this exceptional player who does not get a lot of attention. And, and that's that's how I feel too with Ramirez. I mean, he's someone that you know inside you know baseball circles or people like to, are really into baseball. Yeah, he he gets the appreciation and the attention. But you know, average baseball fan, they don't mention Jose Ramirez. I I just remember you know going up against I think it was 2017 when they were going up the, against the Yankees. Ramirez is in the middle of a, like 8.5 WAR season in the playoffs and. And it's just so funny to see how he's treated from a like media perspective versus like Aaron Judge when like 
Ramirez has wiped the floor with Aaron Judge from a production standpoint all year. And it's just, you know, it's how baseball goes. It's how markets work. But it is one of those things where, you know, if I can hype up Jose on any platform ever, I adore him enough to do so. And, you know, that, that's – I mean, Jose Ramirez is my current favorite player on this team, uh, mostly because we share the same birthday. That's an easy tiebreaker for any sort of <laughs> – any sort of uh, – uh, you know, favoritism in terms of player. Uh, See, I have Lindor's, and, really? and I uh, we have the same birthday, and I, I am not a, not as aligned. So. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Partially because he's younger than me and accomplished so much, so you know, it's tough. Uh, you know, uh, just I mean, Jose's just a guy that's he's he's fun. I mean, yeah, Frankie's fun too, but Jose's like you don't expect the the production out of someone that looks like Jose Ramirez. You know, oh, yeah. he's he's not, you know, this big jacked guy. You know, you look at him, it's like, oh, okay, this guy looks like a third baseman. And it's like, oh, this guy can hit. <laughs> well, and then it's like no one who's ever seen that guy run has been like, oh, that's like a 20 to 30 steel guy. And it's like, oh, no, he's a ridiculously smart and intense runner who puts up 20 to 30 steals with, like, slightly above average speed and almost never gets caught. I mean, it's it's awesome. Yeah, he's he knows how to run the base paths well. He knows how to, you know, play his position well. Uh, I, do you remember when he was a, there was those uh, false steroid accusations about Jose Ramirez a few years back? Yeah, and they've never left for but, some reason. I think... It, it's always a running joke with a couple of my buddies that he's like on steroids because we never are willing to accept that like players just make adjustments and get better. We're like, ah, steroids. And that <laughs> my, always worries me about Jose. My first, my first thought with the with those steroid allegations was, look at him. Does he look like he's someone on steroids? <laughs> <laughs> it's like he's not in good shape. The guy, the guy, he'll like steal second and just be gassed for like two innings. But he's like, still second. Like, you ever see him just like walk? It's not like a, a straight walk. It's kind of a <laughs> kind of bobs back and forth a little bit. <laughs> yeah. But you know, some of that's just a little bit of Jose's attitude. Some of it's uh, him not necessarily being in you know shape shape. <laughs> <laughs> All fair. Now, uh, I, I know. I mentioned this earlier, uh, salary dumps, not necessarily the uh, most in- entertaining part of, of the Indians, uh, but something that they had to debate uh, about doing, and some people that argue whether they should or shouldn't do, but uh, they seem to be a, a team that has to... Uh, uh, accommodate their market and where they're at and what their future is. And unfortunately it's cutting salary in more ways than one. Yeah. And I, I'm interested on in your take on this on, on covering them, but my experience has always been, I feel like I get stuck cause I want to have two different conversations, right? The first conversation is, is $120 million a reasonable budget? Is $90 million a reasonable budget? Let's talk about like baseball finance. And the other conversation is, all right, well, the Indians have decided, you know, $95 million is a reasonable budget. How are they going to succeed with $95 million? Mm-hmm. And so 
those are the two conversations. And I think they get intermixed a lot and they're so, so separate. And I, you know, sometimes I'm just like, man, I'd really just like to talk about like how they're going to do something with this $95 million budget instead of saying they should have 110 every time. Mm -hmm. That's another conversation. Let's have it. But that's something that frustrates me. I I mean, the way I always look at it is I'm very aware of the way the market is for baseball in Cleveland. I I am very aware of that their, their TV deal is not the best TV deal compared to some of the ones of other clubs. Uh, I, I am aware that uh, net worth of the owners does not mean cash flow, which is a, a definitely a debate that has been continuing and is at the heart of the Dolan's Cheap movement on Twitter. Um, I, I'm aware that they're a team where attendance does matter. Whether people don't like it, like to hear that or not, it does. Uh, and I'm also aware that uh, you know, speaking to other people, the perception of the Indians outside of Cleveland is completely different than it is inside of Cleveland. You know, I, I talked to someone two weeks ago who's from Pittsburgh, and he's like, you want to see a cheap owner? Look at the Pirates. That's a cheap owner. Don't don't complain about the Dolans. You know, he, he person referred to him as a, a model franchise. Now, I... I I guess for small markets, yes. I think that was the context he used, but I think he's more right than wrong in what he's saying. And you know, with the perception of a team like Pittsburgh, it, it gives you a, I guess, a different idea and way of looking at it. When you know the Pirates notoriously don't spend money anytime. Yeah, you know, it's there's that group where it's the Pirates, the Rays, the Marlins, and the Rays obviously are amazingly run so it's not as obvious with them but there's that group of four or five who aren't even in the tier of you know what's similar to cleveland and i I don't think the dolans behave that differently than if you watch minnesota soda chicago white Sox, kansas city royals if you watch their spending habits they do the ramp up to like 120 130 million when they're contending Mm -hmm. and when they're not they're rebuilding they slash and I, and I don't think the Indians are alone in that. I think every one of those is doing it. So if you're irritated by the Dolans doing it, you know, you probably wouldn't be a huge fan of the Twins, the White Sox, the Royals, or any other owner in the division. It's not a defense of them. We, once again, it's I'm sure they're profiting, and we can talk about how much they should profit, whether they should. But it's just they're operating the same as almost every other similar market, and you know, it's the way it goes. It is the way it goes. Do you ever partake in the attendance debate? Because that seems to be something that just happens on a nonstop basis when baseball is actually happening. No, I don't care, and I, I don't have a good opinion. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I think there are just a collection of nuanced contributing factors as to why attendance is down, and you know, that's it's life. <laughs> See, I, I have a, a theory on the Indians' uh, attendance and how it's basically been non-existent for 18 years and then you know the no higher than ninth in the american league since 2002 and it, i think it's a, a variety of factors it's and when they first started the salad streak it was a new ballpark so everyone's excited everyone's getting you know season ticket plans suites everyone's investing their money and time into there then the browns leave which takes a, a spot away from people to spend money uh 
The Browns come back, but then the Cavs are bad. And the Browns are bad. Then the moment in 2002 is their final year of having good attendance. It's their final year of, uh, before their, I guess, tank rebuild. Uh, the Browns have that playoff appearance, and the, the Cavs proceed to draft LeBron James, and they've never since recovered from that moment in time. Yeah, I'd, I'd probably align. I mean, I think you mentioned the Browns. There was, you know, the massive economic recession that leached until, like, 2011, mm-hmm. from 2006 to 2011. Um there's the Cavs having spent the last half decade being, you know, really good. Um, and there, there's like also the transition of like, while it's changing a little bit recently, there's been a lot of suburbanization and moving farther and farther away from downtowns and walk up gets affected when you have, you know, the density of your population slowly spreads farther and farther away from the city. So I, I think it's, it's just a collection of so many things and, I don't think the Indians have much control over it. (laughs) It's not their fault, uh, but it's not the fans' fault either uh, at at the same time. It's it's just a reason. It's it's just a reason. It's something that happened, and it's a a statement of fact. Yeah, and and it's a league that's still making enough money for all these franchises to appreciate in revenue, so it's... And I think, you know, really, it'll be interesting to see you know, how much attendance plays a role in, in income for, for, you know, sports franchises for the next 15 years. I'm not, I think we're slowly and slowly moving away from that being, you know, one of the two biggest pieces of the pie for, for revenue. So we'll, we'll see where that goes. Well, the, the first step in that would be the Indians getting a, a new TV deal. That's a little bit more uh, friendly to them. Uh, revenue wise. So, yeah, so I've I've gone back and forth on that TV deal, which is it, it's fascinating because I think the Dolans one of the underrated parts is the upfront cash, right? So they mm-hmm. sell the station for you know like I think it was three hundred million. Mm-hmm. You can correct me if I'm wrong. And then they have the yearly payments. The yearly payments for the rights are low, but I've I've always been interested of, about whether you know how much for a, for an ownership group that bought the team for just 320 million to sell something for you know 250 million in cash and then 40 million dollars a year over a, a pretty significant period you know from a cash flow perspective that has to have given them a lot of freeman on on their debt service on the purchase i don't think it's terrible it is definitely you know worse than it should be for a market that loves watching baseball on tv yeah the 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 fact that cleveland's routinely uh, one of the top baseball markets for having such a, a lower population than some of the other places. And the amount that the Indians actually get back in yearly payments is it's, it, that's the part that's the terrible part, I guess. <laughs> yeah, uh, I definitely agree. So, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see where they're at. We'll see how they operate. Uh, when, if they come back, uh, Depending on who you read, listen to, talk to, it, the Indians could definitely be one of those teams that keep all of their players, or you could see financial ramifications of this current shutdown leading to, I'm not going to say fire sale, but let's say some aggressive player movement that is 
uh, not friendly to on-field performance. Yeah, it's you get off to a slow start, and where do you stop, right? Like, mm-hmm. when do you move? Clevenger has two years left on his deal. You basically lost a whole year of Clevenger. Brad Hand is, you know, on a near near-term deal now. Those are three, you know, those are probably fifteen percent of the war value of the team that pretty easily could get traded if things don't go well for a month and a half. That's pretty shocking. Yeah. Now I'll I'll wrap this up with one final question for you. Uh, if you had to peg a percentage on if we play baseball this year, what would you put it at? I'd probably put it at thirty-five to forty percent. Okay. It's higher than where I'd put it, but I was trying to be optimistic, James. Jeez. Hey, hey, uh, I'm optimistic too. I would love to see baseball. I'd love to see any sort of biodome scenario. If they incorporate Bali Shore <laughs> with a biodome, even better. Um, but you know, three divisions, ten teams, whatever they do. But you know, it, it seems like they're at a, a certain standoff because something about a pandemic has now become a labor negotiation and that's not going to end well. Yeah. And it, it was always going to be as soon as, you know, it's, it's, you know, you have a labor deal expiring after next season. I think MLBPA and, and the MLB probably negotiated a little too early on, you know, how, you know, compensation for this season, how it might be structured. Um, and what you have is just a situation where, um, you know, it's probably one of the situations where the players union, you know, as, as irritated as fans would be, have more cover than they've had in a long time to say, hey, we're not going to play. Um, you know, they have, you know, real health concerns that affect not only players, but, you know, staff. And, and so they have this position where, you know, they're never going to be popular if they strike or refuse to play. But in this one, they have some form of cover. There's you know, legitimate health risk concerns. Uh-huh. And with that, unless, you know, owners come to the table with some reasonable position, I mean, I, I can't imagine it, you know, the MLBPA conceding. Yeah, definitely don't see the Players Association just being like, yeah, we'll give into what you want to do, especially with uh, proposed revenue splits and no one knows how much money the teams actually make. So you're basically getting... Uh, you're basically living the uh, let's make a deal scenario. You can have this, which is what you already know, or you can have what's in the box. They don't want to have what's in the box. And who does? <laughs> <laughs> well, there was a there was someone on The Simpsons that was very aggressive for t- taking the box, <laughs> and that did not... Uh, it, there was no box in the end, but... <laughs> Uh, well, I enjoyed talking to Indians with you, uh, you know, talking about, you know, team I normally cover a uh, little bit more, uh, I have a little bit more knowledge about it. It's, you know, interesting to see someone who also, uh, pays attention to the team, covers them, you know, how we feel about certain players, whether we're aligned or maybe view things a little bit differently. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. It, it was a lot of fun and made me think about baseball for a couple of hours today before we uh, we got on the phone. So that alone was a great reward. Mm-hmm.